0: As you're turning there, let me give you an idea of how to find it. Look for, look for the Psalms if you're thumbing through a Bible. Move to your right, just past Daniel, right before Joel. Okay, that's where Hosea is. Okay, and then we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 3 to give you some context because it's not going to make any sense if you don't have those verses. And then we're going to look at verses th- 1 through 3 of chapter 3. So we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Okay, that's kind of confusing, but listen to me for a second, okay? We're just going to study chapter 3, okay? So it's okay. But you won't understand chapter 3 unless you get chapter 1. All right. Can you stand for the reading of Scripture? Again, I'm going to read those two sections, and we're going to study Hosea 3. So Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, and then Hosea 3, verses 1 through 3. Okay? When the Lord first spoke through Hosea... The Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I think this is about whoredom. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so he went
0: and took Gomer, the daughter of Debliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Okay, we're flipping over to Hosea 3, or scrolling down on your blue sheet. Okay? And the Lord said to me, that is, Hosea, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Friends, these are the words of God. They're more precious than gold, even much fine gold. And they're sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, this is intense going. Um, This is R-rated stuff in the Bible. And I pray, Father, that you would um, prepare our hearts for some of the shocking language and the shocking ideas that you're about to throw in our way. Um, I pray, Father, that you would not let us get tripped up on propriety, that you would help us to see to the heart um, of you, God, to trace the outline of it, to know the way that it cares for your people. And I pray, Father, that you give us some radical honesty tonight, that you'd help us uh, to know who we are, to know who you are in a clear and precise way. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work and fill us to give us that knowledge. And I pray that that knowledge would change us. And I pray that you wouldn't let us go, that you wouldn't let us leave this room without wrestling with what the Scripture says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, you can sit. So as most of you know, it's Valentine's Day. I'm Thursday. Okay? Woo. Okay? So I want to pour some gasoline on your romantic disappointments. I want to pour some gasoline on your romantic expectations and talk about weddings. Alright, so we're just kind of we're all ready, our hearts are fluttering, our stomachs are churning, maybe some of us feel the need to go throw up. Um <laughs> But we're going to talk about weddings, okay? I'm guessing nearly all of us have been to a wedding. Is that a fair assumption? Right, as a minister, I've even gotten the privilege to do a few weddings to officiate or to to what's the word? Perform a few weddings for people, um, and I can tell you from personal experience. I'm sure you can too. Uh, what the best seat in the house is? What do you think the best seat in the house of a wedding is? Is it where the mother of the bride is? Is it way in the back? Is it behind the woman with the hat, with the feather? That's kind of confusing. Um, no, it's anywhere near the groom. Anywhere near the groom is the best seat in the, in the house, the best seat at a wedding. Okay? Why? Because the groom has a direct view down the aisle to see the bride, who is the center of that show, by the way. Man. Okay? So the groom hears the music go from background classical and kind of surge up into full orchestral swell. He sees the doors in the back of the church fling open, and he catches his first sight of his bride, blushing, gushing, beautiful bride. Okay? He hasn't seen her for at least a day. <laughs> there she is, never prettier than that moment. Her hair is done up, her dress is flowing. Her eyes shine with nervous excitement and expectation. It is a delicate, powerful, and beautiful moment. But I want you to imagine a slightly different scene with me. Instead of the doors flying open to reveal a bride clutching her father's arm and holding back tears as she gazes longingly at her groom, imagine instead that the doors in the back of the church fling open to reveal a bride All dressed in white, her hair done up, but she's not holding her father. Her arms are wrapped around a complete stranger. Another man. In fact, she's got her arms and her legs wrapped around this stranger, and she's sticking her tongue in his mouth and groping him with her finely, newly manicured fingernails. This kind of shocking scene is exactly what Hosea is trying to put before us tonight. God asks Hosea to marry a whore named Gomer. And Gomer has already slept with half the guest list before she even makes it up to the altar. And God isn't just trying to entertain us with sex or shock and awe, He's making a point that's very hard for us to hear, and so He makes it very loudly. He's inviting us to step into his tuxedo shoes and look straight down the aisle to the back of the church where his bride is. To see us, we, spiritually sucking and groping anyone that moves. Before the wedding, during the honeymoon, and years into the marriage. I know this is intense. Perhaps it's offensive. But that's the point. That's the point. God wants us to see the depth and breadth of our sin as spiritual adultery. So he holds the story of Hosea and Gomer in front of us as a picture, a mirror of the story of God and his people, so that we can see how grotesque, how sin is actually a big deal and a personal offense. But thankfully, God doesn't just hold up this mirror and walk away. He shows us the depth of our unfaithfulness only to prove the, gratefulness, the greatness of, our, of his faithfulness. So he shows us the depth of our unfaithfulness to show the, the greatness of his faithfulness. Through Hosea, God proves that he comes after and buys back his people. People like Gomer and people like you and me. In a sentence, the book of Hosea in chapter 3 Verses 1-3 through three tell us this. Sin affects us all and looks like sleeping around on God. Sin affects us all and looks like sleeping around on God. But his redemption is Jesus walking in on us in the arms of someone else and doing what it takes to win us back. Okay, so sin... It affects us all and looks like sleeping around on God. But redemption is Jesus walking in on us with someone else and doing what it takes to win us back. In a more straightforward way, we all sin on God. But Jesus loves his people enough to ransom us, even though it costs him everything, his very life. The truth of this passage is told in the form of three statements. A God's command, verse 1. Hosea's obedience to that command, verse 2. And then Hosea's command to Gomer, verse 3. But let me give it to you in a way that, in three parts that actually have a more drive towards application. How do we apply this? First, in verse 1, we see our sin in Gomer. Okay. Second, in verse 2, we see God's ransom in Hosea. And third... In verse 3, we see how God's ransom transforms our sin. Okay? Verse 1, our sin. Verse 2, God's ransom. Verse 3, how our sin becomes true love. Let's begin looking at verse 1. The story of Gomer and how it relates to sin. So turn there if you're not there. Let's look at verse 1. God commands Hosea this. Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. The woman described as an adulteress is clearly Gomer. Okay? The same Gomer referred to in chapter 1, in the verses that we read earlier. Okay? We know that God is telling Hosea to pursue Gomer once again because he uses the word again. Okay? Not rocket science. So, you see, this isn't Hosea's first time pursuing Gomer. But I really want to take a closer look at who Gomer is and what's happened to Gomer up until chapter 3. It's really actually worth reading chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea on your own. Um, I've been doing that over the last, couple, last week or so, just kind of marinating it. It's been really helpful, but I'll give you the, give you the summary. Gomer is a young woman whose belly growls with a deep emptiness, And she thinks that sex will fill the pit of her stomach with satisfaction. With spiritual food. So she gives guys what they want, hoping that they'll give her what she wants. Affection, love, to be cherished, to feel full. She's left a trail of tears behind her. Her own, when she wakes up alone yet again. And the people that she cheats on when they hear of the people that she's cheating on with. I love the way that Tim Keller, a pastor, puts this. He describes Gomer as a city without walls. She's a city without walls. She's defenseless against her own passions. Gomer is a diagnosable sex addict. We all know someone like this, maybe. And my guess is that some of you maybe feel this describes you. In the book of Hosea, God commands Hosea to marry this woman. And he does. That's what makes this an amazing book. <laughs> Chapter 1 tells us that they have a child together, Jezreel. But the next, two ch- the next two children are Gomers, but not Hosea's. In fact, so much so that God tells Hosea to name the third child, not mine. <laughs> not mine. <laughs> Somebody else's. Okay. By chapter 2, Gomer's adultery has become a full-fledged lifestyle. In fact, Gomer is described as a full-fledged prostitute. Sex is no longer just for fun. Sex is no longer for emotional warmth. Sex with strangers is Gomer's work-a-day job. So in chapter 2, Hosea confronts Gomer and, and does an amazing thing. He gives her lovers food and money to take care of Gomer his wife, and then Hosea separates himself from her in a near divorce. And this is where chapter 3, verse 1 picks up the story of Gomer. Because Gomer's no longer a whore, she's no longer a prostitute, she's a sex slave. She's enslaved for her sex. We don't know how. Maybe she got into a debt with a pimp, and or maybe she sold herself to a temple to be a cult prostitute. We don't know. But sex for Gomer has gone from my body, my choice, to my body, my income, to my body, my slavery. The second part of verse 1 tells us Gomer's downward spiral with sex is a picture of our downward spiral with sin. Gomer's ever-increasing slavery to sex maps the progress of our sin if it's unchecked, if it's not fought. God tells the children of Israel in us, and this is my paraphrase of the second part of this verse. Ready? Look, you may have a promise ring, and you may have made a virgin vow, but you are turning to other gods, and you're eating their food. That's what he's talking about. You see, sex may not be your fix, but something other than God is often at the center of our lives. Grades in the field of fear of failure. Body image and trying to impress someone else and people around you. These things can creep into our heart's first position. Here's a helpful question for us to think about. When you don't have anything else to think about, where does your mind go? Let's just say your phone is charging and it's away from you. Okay? And you have this moment where you can't check your email and pretend like people are texting you and calling you all the time okay, and emailing you all the time. okay. Where does your mind go? Where does your mind go when you go to sleep? Where does your mind go when you wake up? What are you thinking about? Those things are other gods. They're other gods. That's what the passage is talking about. Let me put this another way. That may be the point of Hosea. Who do you identify with most in Hosea? Is it Hosea? Or is it Gomer? Who do you identify with most? Look, it's reasonable if you say Hosea. People have hurt us, and God sometimes calls us to go and love those people who've hurt us anyway. Not just sometimes, all the time. But God's point is to get us to identify with Gomer. He's the Hosea to us, after all. I think this is such a hard truth. Such a hard truth. Uh, Let's be honest. I lost some of you probably like 15 minutes ago the minute I gave you that analogy and said we're groping and sucking someone in in the foyer of a a church, some of you just went I'm done. I'm done. I'm just going to be nice and patient and sit through this, but I'm done. Okay? At some level we all think my sins are little and controllable. I'm no Gomer. I'm no Gomer. But I want us to see how we have a choice about how we view ourselves and how we view our sin. Okay? I want us to see how we, can, we have a choice about how we view ourselves and how we view our sin. And I'm going to do this by using an illustration from C.S. Lewis. We've got to go there, don't we? Okay, C.S. Lewis. I've quoted Tim Keller. I've got to quote C.S. Lewis now. It's a quota. Okay. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis tells us that when he thinks about his day and the way that he has sulked, snapped, sneered, snubbed, or stormed other people he immediately finds an excuse. He immediately finds an excuse. I was provoked. I was caught off guard. It's no fair. That's not who I really am. But this suddenness of the event, of the circumstance, is not the cause of sin. That's not the cause of sin. It merely prevents the sin from hiding. That's his point. And he gives us a really great illustration to help us understand this. Lewis asks us to imagine ourselves Running down the base to a basement to get something. Okay, we're in a hurry. We're in a rush. We've got to be somewhere. We know where the thing is. We know where we left it, and we just take off. And our feet go lightly down the staircase. Right, we're just barely touching the stairs. We're going so fast. And at the very end, we, we flip on the lights when we get to the basement floor, and there we see a swarm of rats. Rats all over the floor. Okay. Because the rats have had no time to run and hide. And so here's the question that Lewis asks us. What do we do with this shocking discovery of rats in the basement? Okay? Should we stomp down the stairs shouting and flicking the lights on and off? I'm coming! I'm coming! Olly olly oxen free! I don't know what that means still. Okay? Um, I'm coming. Or do we do something different? If we stomp down the stairs and shout and flick the lights off and on and off, have we solved the problem with the rats? Or are we just living in a fantasy world? Okay? They're not truly gone. And we have the same choice about our sin. Our hearts are like a basement that are infested with rats. That is sin. Are we going to go stomp and shout excuses at the way we hurt others and hurt God until our sin goes into hiding? Or are we going to get radically honest about who we are, about our sins, that they're not just random acts of unkindness, but they're symptoms of a heart problem. Before we again choose to excuse our behavior and say that's not who we really are, listen to C.S. Lewis once more. He asks us, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is, isn't it? Surely what pops out of his mouth before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth, isn't it? So Lewis, the book of Hosea, is asking us, who is the real you? Who is the real me? Is the me with my Bible and the cup of coffee and infinite amounts of time and space, is that the real me? Or is the real me in the middle of finals week? Is the real me, right before I enter a final examination, someone asks me a question. Is the real me um, the excited best behavior me of day one of the winter retreat? Or is the real me the, the tired, needing personal space me at day three of the winter retreat? Is the real me Hosea? Or is it actually Gomer? That's the question we have to wrestle with. And it's so important to identify with Gomer, because if we know the true depths of our sin, we can know the true depths of God's love. And this is the insight that that leads us from verse 1, in the first main point, our sins in Gomer, to verse 2 in the second main point, God's ransom and Hosea. In the first three chapters of Hosea, Hosea's all-encompassing, all all-pursuing, costly love for Gomer is the only thing that matches and exceeds and surpasses Gomer's free fall into sin and sex. Do you get that? The only thing that can match and overtake Gomer's sin is Hosea's love. In chapter 1, Hosea marries Gomer when she's having sex all over town. In chapter 2, Hosea confronts and cares for Gomer and her prostitution. In chapter 3, verse 2, Hosea buys Gomer out of sexual slavery. And he pays the equivalent of 30 shekels of silver. is an important number in the Bible, because in Exodus 21, that's the exact amount of silver that you pay to buy a slave's life back. I want you to catch the scene here. It's vivid. Imagine it with, you, with me, okay? Hosea walks across town to the brothel, to the whorehouse, okay? Knocks on the door, and then starts to negotiate with the local pimp. Not just negotiate, but beg and bribe the local pimp to give back his wife because she sold herself into slavery. He begs and bribes her. He, the guy now literally owns Gomer, body and soul. And before he leaves... He drops the money and the bushels of barley and whatever alethic is onto the table okay, and buys back his wife from slavery to another man. This is a scene of ransom. This is what ransom looks like. Ransom looks like love paying the price for a human life. Commentator James Boyce calls this ransom scene the greatest chapter in the Bible. That's amazing. He went to the Old Testament, to Hosea, to a five verse chapter, and said, This is the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. Why? Because it beautifully paints the picture of the most beautiful story in the history of humanity. The most beautiful story in the history of humanity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the most unique story. Think about it. Think about what other crazy, whacked out religion would ever have this as at the center of it. Okay? This isn't the cunning of man, this is the eyes would open love of God. God became a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who loved his whoring people so much that he bought their freedom by his blood on a cross. You see, it's no coincidence that the name Hosea is a variation of the name Joshua or Yeshua. And Yeshua is the ancient Hebrew name for Jesus. In a very real way, Jesus is reenacting or reenacting Hosea's ransom of Gomer. But instead of just Gomer... He rescues everybody who believes in him. Like Hosea, Jesus buys his people back from sin and slavery for 30 shekels. But in Jesus' case, the 30 shekels, the 30 pieces of silver, is not the price of our freedom. No. The 30 pieces of silver are the price of his, of Jesus' life, where he's sold into slavery and then into death on the cross by Judas. That's the only way he can make us free. You see, Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago paid the ultimate price for his people to go free. His blood, his life, for your life, for my life. And that's the gospel. But according to our passage, Jesus didn't just die to make us his slave. He didn't die just to make us free, even. Jesus died on a cross, and he spilt his blood to make us his blushing bride. And we see this fact in verse 3, how God's ransom transforms our sin into true love. Let's look there. There, Hosea tells Gomer, and he tells Jesus tells us, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. You see, Hosea intends to make an honest woman out of Gomer. And Jesus intends to do the same with us. To wash us with the water of his vows until we are a holy splendor, until we are without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, or without any such thing. You see, Jesus tells his marriage to us, he uses his marriage to us, by his ransom and through our faith, Jesus' covenant vows and constant loving presence actually change us. They change us. They change who we are. Jesus' eternity-long commitment to love me well, to love you well, that marriage kind of love makes me want to love him back. and It makes me want to love other people. God goes from a cop who gives us speeding tickets when he catches us to a spouse who writes us love letters that are all bound up for us in the scripture. I love the way that Andrew Peterson describes how Jesus saves us through marriage. He sings from the perspective of Gomer in a song called Hosea. From the perspective of you and me. He says it this way, he sings it this way. Remember, this is Gomer, me, you. I stumbled and fell on the road on the way home. Hosea, Hosea. I lay in the brick street like a stray dog. You came to me like a silver moon with the saddest smile I ever knew. Hosea carried me home again. Home again. Then later at the end of the song, Peterson as Gomer again sings this. You washed me clean like summer rain. And you set me free with that ball and chain. Hosea, I threw away the key. I'll never leave. I love that line. Do you get that Jesus sets us free with that ball and chain? That Jesus uses marriage, all the responsibilities, all of the obligations, all of the boundaries that his marriage to us has. And he uses that not to enslave us but to free us. Throughout this song, is wrestling with what he wrestled with at the beginning of our time together. The way that Hosea reimagines our wedding day with us as an unfaithful bride. But do you know what? When the doors at the back of the church open, when Jesus sees us with our arms around another person, Another stranger. You know what? Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't even clench his jaw. Instead of standing stiffly in the front of the church, Jesus wades through the people to the back of the church. Do you know what he does there? He lifts us up from our shame. He wipes away the self-pity under our eyes. And he carries us back down to the altar. And know this. If you get nothing else from this time, know this. That Jesus Christ never, ever stops carrying his people. He never, ever stops carrying us through our honeymoon, through our wedding, and through the worst and the best years of our lives. That's redemption. That's ransom. That's what it looks like to see our bridegroom carrying us across the threshold. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, I say this every week, a tough passage, um, but I pray, Father, that you would use it and that you would need the message of your gospel into our hearts, that um, you would show us the depth of our sin, but for every one deep, dark look, at the extent of our sin, at the pit of our emptiness, at the hunger that drives us to do stupid things, I pray, Father, that you would give us ten looks at the cross, ten looks at the thirty shekels of blood that's spilled to pay for our sin, ten looks at the way that you, ball and chain, marry us and carry us through life. Ten looks, Father, at the way in which you pick us up when we lay in the brick street like a stray dog, and you carry us home again, home again. I ask, Father, that you would press these truths upon our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.